Okay, welcome back everyone. This is the Didactic Mind Podcast, episode 64, The Hand of Mammon. Very warm welcome as always to all of my long-time readers, all of my Podbean subscribers, uh, anyone who's been following the podcast for a long time. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the routine. Uh, always make sure that you uh, like, comment, share, and subscribe. Um, if you have not subscribed already, obviously. If you are new to the podcast, uh, most warm welcome to you. I'm sure, uh, I hope that you will come back for many more of these uh, podcasts in the future. Uh, it's always fun to reach various audiences with uh, some of these ideas that I like to spread out and put out there for public consumption, uh, insofar as it's possible anyway. And uh, I want to start off by talking about, uh, very briefly, uh, the need to protect yourself from big tech. I've been banging this drum for some time now, and um, I'm not doing it you know, just to be persnickety. I'm doing it because it's absolutely vital and necessary that we acknowledge um, just how dangerous and out of control big tech has become. And they truly have lost all sense of restraint and uh, all sense of tolerance for opposing viewpoints at this point in time. There is no question or doubt based on what we have seen with uh, Parler over the last you know, 10 days um, and what we have seen with uh, the God Emperor's supporters uh, since the storming of the hill on January 6th that big tech is now uh, now views itself as a government unto itself, as a, a, a deep state unto itself. Um, and it, it's kind of fascinating if you, if you have um, a lot of kind of reading under your belt. Um, if, you, if you read uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Mars trilogy, uh, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, and you read through particularly Green Mars, you would be shocked to discover that although Kim Stanley Robinson's understanding of science is amazing, uh, his understanding of how the science works and of like kind of the human relationships between various people, how all of that stuff works, he's brilliant at that stuff. Um, but in, in the Mars trilogy, he talks about how virtuous corporations come along, transnational corporations, transnats, um, who, which come along and they, you know, in the wake of, uh, massive ecological and economic catastrophes on Earth, come to Mars and really help reshape the future of the planet in a very benevolent way. Um, you'd be shocked at how much he missed the mark, which is amazing because, I mean, it's a brilliant series. I, I particularly loved, um, Blue Mars. I thought it was the best book in the series, although it's, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a tight contest because all three are fantastic. Um, but he talks about how these big corporations help allocate capital in a very benevolent way and help to do good things for, for people to improve lives on two different planets. Uh, that is not the situation we're looking at today. I don't think anyone in his right mind would look at uh, the biggest corporations in the world today and think that they're actually helping people. They're not. And bear in mind, I'm not some kooky, loony, Marxist uh, ranting and raving about structural inequalities and 
uh, dialectical materialism. That's not me. I'm the exact opposite of that. As far as I'm concerned, um, the less government, the better. But in this case, these are exactly the kinds of abuses that governments are supposed to prevent. And unfortunately, big tech is sanctioned by law to do what it does in the USA, not in Europe. Uh, the big tech companies are significantly more constrained with what they can do in Europe because of the data protection laws and privacy laws uh, in operation in the UK and in Europe. And that is, honestly, I'm, I'm, I mean, it pains me to say this but as much as I hate the European Union, um, but it's one of the few good things about the EU. And I'm kind of shocked that I have to admit that, but it's the truth. You know, I, I can't help where the truth points me. It just, it is what it is. Um, so that being said, uh, big tech has made extremely clear that they will do anything and everything in their power to destroy people that they disagree with, supposedly in the interests of public safety, which is bullshit. It's nonsense. What they're doing is an unmitigated power grab, and they've made very clear that they will not respect, um, either uh, the U.S. government or individual rights. They don't care about it. If they think that you are evil or you have the wrong opinions or uh, if they think they can just get away with deplatforming you, they absolutely will. Look at what Amazon Web Services did to Parler. Uh, Parler made a very dumb mistake. I mean, they, they decided to host themselves on AWS um, because those are one of the three big players in the cloud. Um, industry. There's AWS, there's Google, and there's Microsoft Azure. These are really the three big cloud providing platforms. Um, Oracle is in there as well to some extent, but not nearly to the same degree. Um, essentially, if you want a large-scale, robust set of databases and servers that will house huge amounts of data and allow lots of users to use your application, you kind of have to either build your own platform, which means you have to buy your own server racks and your own server farms and storage space, or you outsource it to one of these three companies. Now, Parler may not have had a choice, but they're paying the price for it now because Twitter and Parler are both hosted by AWS. Now, obviously, um, AWS cannot simply terminate your, uh, your, uh, account very, very easily and very quickly. Um, the reason why they don't terminate Twitter and they do terminate Parler is because obviously there's tremendous big tech collusion going on. It's not difficult to figure this out. Uh, firms of that size do collude and they all are populated by people who think basically the same way. So if you want to avoid the fate of Parler and of Trump's supporters, you need to protect yourself. I wrote up a post on Saturday called Protect Yourself from Big Tech. It is essential information. Uh, I will link to it in the description box for this uh, podcast and all of the advice that I give you um, will be you know, circulated within the, uh, the description box as well. You know, just a very brief summary of what you need to do. Basically, you need to get yourself a VPN. That's first and foremost. You need to mask your internet traffic. Uh, using the Onion Router is a good start. It's free, but it's trackable. You can be tracked through the Onion Router through the first 
um, public domain server that you access through Tor. I mean, you, your IP address will be logged by the U.S. government. It's going to happen. One of the commenters to that, well, the commenter that, to that post as of right now pointed that out. You're going to be tracked. Uh, so if you want a more secure connection, you need a private VPN. The best way to do that is to buy into a service such as Surfshark, NordVPN, ProtonVPN, uh, GooseVPN, ExpressVPN, and so on. Now, I personally think that of the various VPN services on offer, Surfshark is by far the best. And here's why. Surfshark uh, offers by far the best value for money. You can get unlimited devices across any platform. Uh, you have over 1,800 different servers that you can log into in many, many different countries, spread out all across the globe. So you never have to worry about running into um, limits as far as what you can access. Uh, and it is log-free. Uh, now, they're not verified log-free of the various VPN services that I know of. Only really ProtonVPN and NordVPN are verified log-free, but NordVPN refused to give me an affiliate link, so screw them. Um, and you can now get Surfshark for 81% off. 81% off uh, the regular price, which is to say $2.49 a month um, for, I believe, a two-year contract. So $2.49 a month, I mean, think about that, for less than uh, the price of a wildly overrated cup of coffee at Starbucks, which you can't even get right now, probably because uh, if you're living in a big city with a Starbucks, um, it'll be closed due to the stupid Kung Flu lockdowns. Uh, but for a two-year contract, you know, $2.49 a month, you can be protected. Um, I will, I can tell you right now, I mean, I'm using a VPN as I upload uh, this particular podcast. Let me, let me explain to you how powerful this is. If I, if I, uh, I can give you my exact uh, IP address right now, and I will. Uh, just give me a second. If I want to connect to the internet and uh, show what my IP address is, it's right here. Uh, you just visit any IP trace uh, function. And my IP address right now, 84.17.39.219, okay? You can go to trace IP, and I did exactly that, um, <clears throat> trace-ip.org, and I did exactly that in Saturday's post. And according to trace traceip.org, you will be able to see where I am, at least according to my IP address, right? You will be able to tell where I am in the world. And you can submit that exact IP address, 84.17.39.219, and it will tell you that I am located somewhere in Malaysia, in Johor Bahru. Except I'm not there. I'm nowhere near there. And you don't know where I am. You can't find me. You're not going to be able to. That is the very first step that you need to take, and you need to take it now. So take advantage of the offer, uh, the link to um, the Nord, uh, sorry, for, to the Surfshark uh, uh, deal is going to be in the description box. Make sure you take advantage of it. If you have a VPN right now, good for you. If you don't have a VPN, get one. You're going to need a VPN connection. This is no longer about, you know, 
downloading episodes of The Mandalorian if you're living outside of the U.S. It's no longer about getting access to all those cool, uh, funny-sounding German movies if you're living in the U.S. through Netflix. It's not about that anymore. This is about essential safety and security. It's about disguising your identity on the Internet. It's about surfing uh, and gathering information without big tech watching over you. If you post something on Twitter and people can track your IP address, they can know where you live, what you do, who you are, and who's around you. Don't give people that power. Make sure that you use a VPN connection. It's not foolproof, but it's a hell of a lot better than surfing naked. Okay, so with all that uh, dire warning stuff out of the way and a uh, very long rambling advertisement uh, for various services, let's get on to the real topic of today's podcast. And today's topic is all about um, the increasing financialization and destabilization of the world's markets. Now, why is this important? What? Well, first, let's start with what is financialization? Financialization, to put it very, 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 very simply, involves um, the emphasis on returns over, uh, or the, the, the emphasis on financial performance of a company in the public market over the actual long-term growth and sustainability of that market. Now, let me be very clear. I am not coming at this topic from the perspective of some you know, green-eyed hippie. Um, I can't stand those people. I have very little respect for this whole, we should both be good and do good, um, impact investing, uh, hippy-dippy, trendy nonsense that everybody seems to be getting into these days. I have no patience for that. As far as I'm concerned, the business of a business is business. That's it. The business of a business is to make a month, is to make profit, is to make money. That's it. Everything else beyond that um, you know, all of the virtuous do-gooder bullshit, that is part of a company's choices. If a company chooses to pollute the waters and cause problems for, um, uh, and, and, and pollute the air and, you know, cause health problems for uh, people in its local area, it absolutely deserves to be punished under the full force of the law. But that's, an, that's a matter of law. It's not a matter of shareholder capital allocation. And I'm speaking here as an investor, somebody who's been invested in public markets uh, since oh, before I was 18. You know, my dad gave me uh, shares in a stock for my 18th birthday, basically. The best gift he could possibly have given me. I've always said for the last many, many years that like, you know, uh, it was the best gift anyone's ever given me. And I maintain that view to, to this very day. Um, <clears throat> The, what I mean by financialization as a bad thing, when I say it's a bad thing, I mean that essentially this focus on short-term gains of, of short-term appreciations in stock prices is endemic throughout the Western world. Um, it's not so big a deal in uh, Europe or in Asia, but it's a huge problem in U.S. markets. I mean, it, it's becoming a problem in Asia, no, no question about it. It's becoming a huge problem in parts of Asia. Probably Japan and China have some of the worst issues with financialization. Um, but it's of a different kind. The financialization I'm talking about is concentrated in Western markets. Um, essentially, what we're talking about is a, an obsessive focus on 
stripping away a company's um, productivity and long-term growth potential to focus on delivering short-term results and short-term share price spikes. There are several manifestations of this phenomenon in the real world. One of them is this phenomenon of incredibly cash-rich companies issuing debt and then using the cash generated from that debt to buy back their own shares. Apple has been doing this for the better part of a decade. They All they do is they issue billions of dollars in debt, they raise money through that debt, they buy back their shares, and they boost their stock price massively as a result. And that has a uh, cyclical or, or kind of um, a self-reinforcing cycle to it. Because people see that Apple stock is performing well. Why is it performing well? Because they're buying back their own shares. So more people want to invest in it to, to boost the stock up. So the stock goes higher and higher. That is the reason why Apple is one of the most valuable companies in the world. Or It's not the reason. It's one of the reasons why Apple is one of the most valuable companies in the world. And by definition, that has some ramifications because Apple has so much power and so much cash and so much influence in the market that it can do things like kick people off of their platforms. Google is uh, owned by, well, it used to be a publicly traded company. Google used to be um, used to be traded under Goog, the ticker sign. And now it's, I, I think they engaged in some sort of financial engineering where they folded into a parent company called Alphabet. And um, Alphabet now owns Google as part of a portfolio of companies, of which I think Waymo is uh, another one. Um, <clears throat> Google is very, very cash rich. They have billions upon billions of dollars in cash sitting on their balance sheet. They don't need it. Uh, they can't do anything with it. <clears throat> so the idea is that they return that capital to shareholders through stock buybacks and dividend payments. Another aspect of financialization has to do with um, essentially uh, this focus on completely short-term unlocking of value. And what does that mean? Well, you, let's take the phenomenon of leveraged buyouts. The, the idea behind LBOs, in theory, was a brilliant one. Basically, the idea was that um, companies like Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts, Roberts, uh, Kravis, Kohlberg, Roberts, whatever it was called, KKR, would come in, uh, target a company for takeover. They would buy a majority position on uh, a majority of the company's shares <clears throat> through various um, through various uh, purchases and um, uh, you know by marshalling kind of a consortium of investors uh, coming in, purchasing the shares, and then they would uh, basically try to buy out the rest of the company, either by mounting a hostile takeover bid and offering the remaining investors a very large premium for their share price, and they would back that up by raising cash through issuing debt to be paid off by the target company eventually when you know the, the company was, uh, was purchased. <coughs> or they would um, outright just try to take over as many shares as possible uh, through direct purchases. Or they would install their own sort of activist directors on, on the board of directors to, to manage things in, in ways that they wanted to. And this phenomenon really took off <clears throat> in the 1980s. Why? 
because of um, Michael Milken's idea of junk bonds, essentially corporate bonds issued um, and, and, and backed by the profits and future earnings of a corporation. And uh, Michael Milken's research showed that investments in junk bonds actually outperformed the long-term returns of the overall stock market, at least at the time. And uh, that really triggered that along with uh, new computerized models of valuing various complicated financial derivatives really caused an explosion in debt-based financing throughout the 80s. And uh, we're, still, we're still dealing with the consequences of that today. So, <clears throat> so the, the, the phenomenon of people coming in and taking over corporations and kind of breaking them apart started with leveraged buyouts and continues on to this day. Now, the justification behind all of this goes back much farther in time to before the 70s where a lot of corporations would take their profits and kind of sit on them. They would put them into cash on the balance sheet and they would just sort of leave them there. Um, management would not return that, that money to shareholders, even though technically it belongs to shareholders. So they would instead invest it in plants, equipment, training, workforce, hiring, things of that nature, um, particularly research and development. And this was very, very important. This was how the United States maintained its industrial and technological edge for so long. Well, it's one of the factors anyway. So U.S. corporations were highly innovative, highly uh, forward-looking, and generally tried to think in terms of months or years worth of investment, decades even, into the future. That all changed when uh, both academics and practitioners realized that there was tremendous unlocked or locked-up value sitting on the balance sheets of various companies in the United States. They realized that companies were just sitting on this cash and not doing anything productive with it. And that's actually a fair charge. I mean, that's true. That did happen. There's no doubt or question that much of the S&P 500 at the time was sitting on enormous stores of accumulated cash and very little debt. Um, so a lot of shareholders got quite pissy about this, got quite angry and uh, decided to do something about it. And this is where the financialization of markets began. Uh, again, and, and going back to what is financialization, an alternative and probably more sensible definition comes down to the emphasis of uh, the, the, the uh, shall we say, uh, crowding out, if you will, of the financial part of the economy by the financial part of the economy of the real productive part. What I mean by that is the financial, uh, the, the finance related industry is actually quite small in relation to the rest of the US economy in terms of employment numbers. If you look at the entire finance sector, all the banks, all the investment banks, all the hedge funds, all the private equity funds, all of the mutual funds, all of the financial intermediaries, everything. If you look at all of that as a proportion of the overall US labor force, it's quite small. It's not a significant part of the economy. But if you look at the contribution of the financial sector of the economy to US GDP, to you know, supposedly all the stuff that America produces, it's north of 
How the hell is it that a sector of the economy that accounts for, let's say, roughly speaking, 5% of U.S. employment out of a labor force of, I think it's 150 million, close to it, uh, how is it that a, that that, that small, uh, a proportion of the labor force can control so much of the economy? How is that possible? It's possible through a number of different mechanisms, and one of those mechanisms is this insistence on uh, unlocking, breaking up companies and unlocking the cash sitting in the vaults and redistributing it to shareholders. Now, there has to be some sort of balance involved in all of this. Um, it, it, there is a point to be made that a lot of companies have too much cash. Um, and there is a point to be made that a lot of companies kind of should return it to their shareholders. I mean, if cash is just sitting on your balance sheet, it's not doing anything. Cash is wonderful. I love cash. I love being rich in piles and piles of cash. But it's not doing anything. It's not generating any returns. So the the, the, the principle behind the, the idea is that you take that money and you return it in the form of dividends or a higher share price. Okay, fine. But does that necessarily lead to better managed outcomes for firms? Are, are firms better managed? Are they more technologically advanced? Are they doing good things for the economy? Are they coming up with innovations? Are they uh, investing in new R&D? Are they propelling the economy forwards? The answer is no. And the scientific literature is, um, I mean, insofar as you can trust academic literature is about anything. Um, the academic literature on this point is pretty conclusive. Firms that think the most short-term and that are most obsessed with uh, the, the earnings per share and dividends per share and um, the, the overall health of the balance sheet are the least innovative, they're the least well-managed, they are the most prone to scandals and, um, and employment problems, they are the fastest to lay off people. They are the fastest to outsource people. They are the fastest to do every single thing wrong that you can think of. The banks are notorious for this. The banks are absolutely notorious for this. Uh, I know. I used to work for two. I, I have worked for two very big banks in my time. And um, this is another aspect of financialization that you see in the real world, where uh, a financialized corporation will very happily outsource half of its people. Why? Because it boosts the bottom line. It will very happily fire 18,000 people as Deutsche Bank did uh, over the course of three years. I mean, can you imagine what it's like firing one-fifth of your workforce, which is what DB did, and I know I was there. Um, I saw it happen. Uh, I was a victim of it, actually, before the, the 18,000 job cuts were announced. Um, can you imagine laying off that many people over three years? I mean, can you, can you, can you even comprehend what that's going to do to worker morale for those people who are left? They're going to be like, what, what, what am I doing here? It's going to destroy everybody's morale. They're going to be worked like galley slaves. They're going to be very poorly compensated for what they do. Um, and they're going to feel miserable. And who benefits? It's not the employers. It's not necessarily the customers. It's top management and it's the shareholders. Now, there is a conflict here. I am a shareholder myself, not in Deutsche Bank, but I am a shareholder myself in multiple companies in the market. If I'm going to buy shares in a company, I want to be rewarded for giving them my capital. I want to see the share price go up. I want to see dividends. I want to see long-term growth of my money. 
But here's the key. It has to be long-term growth. I'm invested for 20 plus years, not until the next, the end of the next quarter. I don't care about that. And this is the piece that's missing in the academic literature. The academic literature and the, pr uh, the practical literature and the newspaper articles and all the rest, they go on and on and on and on and on about how bad sh uh, shareholder value maximization is as a theory, as an idea. And that's true. If you look back at the last 40 years, what have we seen? Coinciding with shareholder value maximization, we have seen crisis after catastrophe after disaster after collapse. It's happened every single time. There's no getting away from it. There is no stability. There is no sense of prudent management. In, uh, in the 1980s, we had the uh, savings and loans crisis and subjected to a bailout from the U.S. government. I mean, Ronald Reagan, you know, one of the biggest mistakes he ever made. St. Mag Reagan Magnus of the right. I revere him. I respect him. But this was one of the biggest, dumbest mistakes he could possibly have made. Um, the, uh, the, the Greenspan put, which is put in place to stop the uh, market crash of 87. Um, <clears throat> the collapse of LTCM, long-term capital management, in 1995. Um, the LTCM crisis in 1995, the Asian financial crisis in 1997, again, I lived through that. I was there. I saw the results of this crisis. Uh, the 2000-2001 dot-com crash, the 2007-2008 um, financial meltdown. I was there. I saw it happen. I was there in New York City as it unfolded. I remember waking up one morning in September of 2008 and walking into work and I saw this headline saying Lehman Brothers just declared bankruptcy. I was like, holy shit. Because Lehman Brothers, as it happened, was located um, like a 20-minute walk from where I was at the time. I was, um, I was in an office in, uh, um, near uh, Grand Central Station, Grand Central Terminal. Uh, Lehman Brothers uh, was on 51st and 7th, 49th and 7th, actually, um, in a building that I eventually ended up working in, you know, when it was taken over by another bank. So uh, I have been around. I've seen a few of, this, uh, a few of these crises. The academic literature constantly focuses on the crises and keep saying, well, shareholder value maximization hasn't worked because all of these companies, they keep collapsing, they keep crashing, they keep burning up huge amounts of capital. Yeah, why? Why do they keep burning up so much capital? Why do they keep screwing up? Why do they keep failing? Why is this happening since very roughly 1971? What is it about that date that is important? Or 1973, actually. What is it about that date that's important? Hmm. I wonder. Here's the funny thing. Almost none of the academic literature actually bothers to understand why it's happening. They all say it's due to shareholder greed. It's due to bad management. It's due to uh, institutional investors gone wild. It's due to predatory practices by hedge funds and private equity firms. It's due to this. It's due to that. Every single one of them, every single one, ignores the true root cause. And that is the derangement, and I use that term in a very specific way, the derangement of the money supply. What do I mean by this? Okay, so derangement has a very specific medical meaning. 
which I'm going to use here. Um, there are actually a number of different definitions of it. One of them is mathematical, one of them is psychiatric. But um, to derange something is to disturb the order, arrangement, or functioning of something. To upset the normal conditional functioning, such as in a bodily organ. To cause to be psychotic or otherwise severely mentally unsound. In, uh, in mathematical terms, it is, again, a lack of order or regular arrangement. In, um, com in combinatorial mathematics, it's a permutation of the elements of a set such that no element appears in its original position. So, these are the definitions of derangement. What am I going to use? I am going to use, again, the medical term to upset the normal condition or functioning of, as in a bodily organ, a system, a, a process. To understand why money is so important in influencing everything we see around us, all these manias, these crises, these panics, you have to go back to the only theory that actually explains anything about economics. That is Austrian business cycle theory. Forget everything else you've learned about economics in high school or in university. It's all wrong. Throw it out. It's all garbage. I know. I have a, I have a joint degree in mathematics and economics. I know how this stuff works. So if you come to me with your Keynesianism, your monetarism, your modern monetary theory, your neo-Keynesian synthesis, whatever. I don't care. I know it, at least at a very high level. I'm not impressed by it. It doesn't work, okay? Because every single one of these theories lacks an explanatory mechanism that shows us the link between money and crises. Keynesianism says crises are all about animal spirits in the economy and you need to revive these animal spirits. It's, it's complete nonsense. I mean, if you want to, uh, if you want to read a brilliant takedown of the original, um, general theory of wages, unemployment, and interest, uh, which is, uh, from all accounts that I have heard, an absolutely unreadable book. But if you want to read a really brilliant takedown of that book, read, uh, Henry Hazlitt's The Failure of the New Economics. Fantastic. I mean, it's about 400 pages long, but I, I thought it was amazing. Uh, I still have a copy of it, actually, I think. It's sitting in all of my stuff. Um, needs to be shipped over. Ph phenomenal book. Absolutely amazing. The only problem that I have with Hazlitt's treatment is that he goes too far on free trade theory. I don't agree with that at all uh, for a variety of reasons. I used to be all about free trade. I, I don't think that's valid anymore and has not been for, well, since ever, really. Um, but that's what Keynes says. It's all animal spirits. Uh, Milton Friedman, who most people don't realize this, Milton Friedman is actually a Keynesian heretic. His, his theory of monetarism is actually nothing much more than a re, uh, remix, a repackaging of the mathematical concepts in Keynesianism. And let's give, you know, let's give Keynes his due. I mean, for all the garbage that goes into his general theory, his mathematical treatment of aggregate supply and aggregate demand was hugely influential. It's wrong, but it's hugely influential. Um, it, it's wrong because you cannot, you cannot, the idea of separating an economy into aggregate supply and aggregate demand is idiotic on its face. You can't do that. Every consumer is a producer and every producer is a consumer, whether you like it or not. Monetarism basically says that everything is due to, um, 
money, the circulation of money in the economy, and uh, uh, comes down to um, Friedman's famous uh, 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 money equals output, or you know, basically money times quantity in circulation equals output. It's been a while since I've looked at this, but uh, you can go look up the the formula for the uh, velocity of money and how it relates to the economy. So everything really comes back to these two paradigms. One is Keynes, one is Friedman. Um, and both are wrong because neither of them can explain why money influences future decisions. They just say it does. Well, yeah, duh, it does. Why? Here's the very, 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 very simple version. Um, if you want to know more, go look up, again, Austrian Business Cycle Theory. Go to Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, and look up all the articles that they have there. They have some phenomenal, um, you know, beginner's introductory material on how um, Austrian Business Cycle Theory works. But here's the basics. Okay. We all start from the premise that man acts. That's just an axiomatic principle. Man acts. He acts to better his station in life. Okay, fine. He acts according to his time preferences. What does that mean? Each of us has a time preference, which is to say we have a preference for when we want to consume something, when we want to do something, when we want to take an action. Those of us with low time preferences are happy to forego current consumption for future consumption because we know and understand that if we consume something now, we may feel good for now, but if we sacrifice our current consumption for future consumption, we will feel good, we will feel even better later on. This leads to a natural rate of interest in the economy. And what is the rate of interest? It reflects our time preferences. It reflects essentially the discount rate that we have to apply internally in our heads for future consumption to be equally preferential or equally preferable to current consumption. Okay, that's the natural interest rate in the economy. It can't really be quantified. You can get an approximation of it, a very rough approximation of it, um, by looking at the rate that people will lend to one another in the private economy. And you can approximate it uh, through bank lending rates and eventually through a central bank lending rate. But it's a very bad idea to, to have a central bank approximate it for reasons we'll see in a minute. What allows us to translate current consumption to future consumption is money. Money has to perform two functions. First, money must be a store of value, which is to say that if you buy a hundred dollars worth of something, the, the money that you pay is a, uh, is, is stores that value. It, it, the, the hundred dollars that you pay is in fact worth a hundred dollars, or it is in fact worth, uh, the amount that you get back in terms of a physical, tangible asset or some service that you get back. It is a store of value. Number two, money is a translation of labor and uh, material into time. Money puts a very clear uh, sort of unit 
of value and also a unit of translation upon your own labor. Money is therefore a medium of exchange. Imagine what we would do without money. Well, you know, if you have goats and I have sheep, or actually if you have goats and I have fish and somebody else has vegetables, um, I would have to come to you and say, how many, how many goats can I get for 10 of my fish? And you'd say, well, you can get three, three of my goats for 10 of your fish or whatever, right? So I'd give you 10 of my fish and you give me three of your goats. And now I have, let's say, five fish and three goats. And then I have to go to the guy who sells vegetables and I have to say, well, I have five fish and three goats. How much, how many vegetables can I get for one goat? Um, I don't know, uh, you can have 10 turnips or you can have uh, five cabbages or so on. Keeping track of all of the units of equivalency is impossible at that point. You can't do it. You can't. It's not possible. But now let's say uh, you translate it all into gold coins. One gold coin is equal to 10 ducks or five fish or three goats or four bushels of wheat or whatever. Now all of a sudden, you just have to keep track of one thing. How much gold do you have? That's it. That tells you how much you can buy. These two concepts tie into the natural rate of interest in an economy, where your time preferences and society's time preferences as a whole translate through money invested at interest to purchase future consumption. Now, what happens when the official rate of interest in the economy, as determined by a central bank or by uh, the price of gold invested in, you know, private banks, or by uh, any form of government body, matches that natural rate of interest? There are no problems because you aren't deceived into thinking that money is cheaper than it really is. What is interest? It's a price of money. It's the price of money. It's the price of foregoing consumption today to get consumption tomorrow. That's all it is. That's what interest is. So, if the natural rate of interest matches the official rate of interest, there are no problems. No one is ever deceived about whether or not his money can buy what he needs in the future. But now suppose the government does something really stupid and lowers, forces down the rate of interest. How? In a gold-based economy, uh, he can do it by selling gold. Uh, in a, an interest rate economy, he can do it through telling the central bank to issue more money into the, into the, the, the general pool through open market operations. Um, the result is a lowering of the rate of interest, official rate of interest. So people are now deceived into thinking that money is cheap. Oh, great. I can now invest in all sorts of projects. I can, I can borrow cheaply. I can take that cash. I can build a business with it. I can buy something with it. I can buy a house with it. I can do this with it. I can do that with it. Well, okay, but eventually you're going to have to pay that back. The resulting, what, are, what Austrians call malinvestments in the economy, start building up very quickly. And eventually, those malinvestments get to the point where people can't pay things back because their propensity to consume, uh, the, the propensity of some people to consume, not everybody, the propensity of some people to consume does not match the propensity of everyone, else's, uh, everyone else to consume in that same time period. And uh, there is only so much uh, future consumption that you can bring into the present. There's a limit to it. You cannot consume 
everything that you were going to consume 10 years from today, today. It's just not possible. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's not physically possible. Humans can't do that. So everyone runs into a hard limit of how much credit they can deal with, how much credit they can take on. Everyone runs into a hard economic limit of how much um, other people will buy of a particular uh, asset or a particular uh, service before the number of buyers and the number of, if you will, suckers in the economy runs out. In the housing market, we saw this you know, in the run-up between 03 and 07. We saw a massive housing bubble in the US. Why did it happen? Because people were convinced that they could keep selling their houses. They could keep flipping their houses. They could buy a house, watch its price shoot up, flip it to the next person, take the cash, do it again, and keep going, keep going, keep going. That The money pool would never, ever run out. But eventually, it always runs out. And that's when you get the collapse. That's when you get the popping of the bubble. Now, how does this relate to financialization of the economy? Well, it should be obvious by now. What's happening? It's a massive derangement of interests, uh, or I should say of incentives in the economy. Massive derangement. And it's most clearly expressed in one of the most short-sighted academic papers I've read on the subject so far. I have to do this for my classes, which is annoying. But this academic paper was it was it was tantalizingly close to the truth. Tantalizingly close. The paper basically said corporations have taken advantage of low short-term interest rates to issue lots of corporate debt, and they and they're you know they're they're, they're issuing huge amounts of junk bonds. Well, duh. What's a junk bond? It's basically anything that is not considered investment worthy or investment grade. Uh, most of the investment houses rate investment worthy as double B or above. So uh, each one has a different letter system, but they all mean the same thing. I mean, S&P 500, uh, sorry, Standard & Poor's has uh, uh, BB, um, capital, two capital Bs. Moody's has, I think, um, capital B, lowercase b. Uh, Fitch has, I think, B2. Something like that. They all have different ratings, and they're, you know, they're all much of a muchness, probably complete garbage, um, especially in the wake of the financial crisis. I mean, these are the same rating houses, agencies, by the way, which rated um, CDOs as with subprime mortgages you know, layered into them um, as AAA, mwah, you know, perfect, complete, pristine wonderful, totally or almost risk-free, um, completely uh, completely safe investing assets on par with investing your money in, a, in, in Johnson Johnson or General Electric. I mean, you're never going to lose your money and so on and so forth. And they knew it was dog shit. They absolutely knew it was dog shit. And they, they couldn't say anything because they were getting such fat uh, fees, uh, assessment fees from the underwriters. If you never watched um, The Big Short, that's worth watching. Uh, also, Margin Call is another movie worth watching on the subject. But if you really want to understand what's going on, read the book. Read um, read Michael Lewis's book, Margin Call. Uh, oh, no, sorry, not damn it. Read Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short. Uh, Margin Call is uh, based on something else. Um, it's well worth the read. It's phenomenal. It's uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, the movie is very good, but it's not as good as the books, or as good as the book itself. Uh, so, what you're seeing in the financial markets is exactly this phenomenon in, in, in corporate markets. 
companies are issuing short-term debt or they're issuing corporate debt at very, very low interest rates relative to the market. I mean, if you've got, um, you know, short-term interest rates at basically 0.2% for a three-month treasury bill. In fact, let's go look it up. What is current short-term interest rates? Uh, U.S. Treasury rates. So this is the U.S. Treasury, and uh, this is daily yield curve, daily treasury yield curve rates. Um, this is this is the the rate at which the U.S. government can borrow money. Okay, the supposedly the safest government in the world, which will always repay. Yeah, that's bullshit. Um, but what are we looking at right now? So. Uh, the one-month T-bill has an interest rate of 0.08%. The three-month T-bill has an interest rate of 0.09%. The three-year bond, or three-year note, actually, um, has an interest rate of 0.2%. The five-year note has an interest rate of 0.46%. And the 10-year bond has a rate of 1.11%. So... A C or triple C rated corporation can come into the market and issue bonds at, let's say, a 3%, uh, 300 basis point markup on the three-year uh, T-bill yield, so 3.2%. And that's an enormous risk premium, by the way. 300 basis points is huge. So 300 basis points, so 3.2%, that's how much they're borrowing at for five years. They can now take that money and use it to buy back their own shares, thereby boosting their stock price, thereby making themselves look like heroes, thereby boosting their return on, on equity and making themselves look like amazing managers of capital. But what are the consequences of that? Well, the one of the major consequences of that is that they stop investing in R&D, in training, in research, in development. Very, very good example from about 20 years back of this exact phenomenon in one of the oldest and most respected companies in the world, Daimler-Benz. What did they do? They cut back on their R&D and quality control budget to boost their share price returns, uh, their, their share price sort of uh, uh, to investors and to get better results in the stock market. And what happened? They went from being at the very top of the quality rankings in J.D. Power's Associates surveys of quality right down to the very bottom, pretty much in the space of a couple of years. That's all it took. Mercedes-Benz cars used to be a byword for absolute reliability and fastidious attention to detail. But if you watch old episodes of Top Gear from back in 2002, 2003, 2004, that sort of era, they were like, Mercedes-Benz quality is shit. It's awful. A lot of Merck owners would uh, ring into their uh, Top Gear motoring survey that they did from 2002 to, I think, 07. And they would tell Top Gear every single time, Mercedes-Benz cars have just appalling build quality. They're, they're, well, not, not build quality, but reliability. They break down constantly. You have to take them to the shop all the time. That's exactly what happens. That's, that's, that's a tangible example of exactly what happens when you have a company that stops focusing on delivering value to customers and starts focusing on delivering value to shareholders instead. Now, again... I'm saying this as somebody who has a perspective of a shareholder. I like being rewarded for giving people my shares, or my, my money to buy their shares. I like that. But I also can look at it from a, sort of a, a more distant perspective and say, financialization is a terrible idea for companies. 
why does it happen? So, you know, with the remaining time, I want to focus on the, uh, the, the way that this embrace of greed affects companies. It's a terrible idea, and the reason why it happens is because of deranged monetary policy. The derangements introduced in the system by very, very, very stupid monetary policy. There is a reckoning coming, and it's going to be absolutely horrendous. The credit-based economy cannot last because a credit-based economy is not based on producing stuff. It's produced on kind of pushing numbers around. That's all it is. And again, I'm telling you this firsthand as someone who is in the belly of the beast for 10 years. I, I, I was in the middle of all of that for that long. I know what they do. They're not creating value by producing a great new widget or uh, coming up with a brilliant new idea or patenting something extraordinary. This is not, we're not talking about people like Dr. James Tor coming up with amazing ideas in synthetic organic chemistry that um, are able to extract uh, graphene from waste, basically, and turn it into carbon nanotubes, um, which is, I, I mean, all he's doing from a practical perspective is taking the atoms of carbon in one particular form and changing their structure around so that they appear in a different form. And all that does, that, that rearranging the atoms, that dramatically increases the value of that carbon. That's all it does. But it's a, it's a brilliant idea. If you don't believe me, go and watch his lecture on the subject. It's fantastic. Um, it's a Discovery uh, Discovery Institute lecture on the origins of life. And he opens it with like a 10-minute um, uh, 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 sort of walkthrough of the real science that he does through his companies. And as far as I understand, it, he's quite rich from, from the process. And, you know, deservedly so. You know, this is brilliant science. This is amazing stuff. Uh, but it's not being done in a lot of American companies. They're not. If if you look at Deutsche Bank, I mean, what do they do? They are a sell side institution. If you look at uh, Goldman Sachs, what do they do? They're a sell side institution. They come up with ever more complicated and tricky derivatives that really have no underlying value other than what the market thinks they are valued. I mean, yes, there's a theoretical value that comes from a mathematical model. I know, I understand those models. But that doesn't mean that it's actually valuable. I mean, is a stock option a contingent claim on actual productive capital? Or is it just a contingent claim on uh, a price somewhere, a, a, a number somewhere? Which one is it? Supposedly, the number is driven by the movements in productive capital. Supposedly, that's how it's supposed to work. But that's not how it's working right now. That the, the, the link between the productive economy and the, the, the financial economy, if you will, or the stock market, is broken. It's been broken for years. It's, it's not completely broken in some of the smaller companies out there, but in the bigger companies, it's completely broken. Almost. Not totally. Almost broken. I mean, how is it possible that Tesla with all of its manufacturing problems, all of its quality problems, all of its build defects, and the fact that it doesn't produce that many cars is more valuable than Toyota, the company that invented total quality management, that created just-in-time supply chains, that revolutionized factory processes, that introduced industrial automation, that came up with all these brilliant ideas and delivered so much value to customers. How is it possible that Tesla is more valuable than Toyota? 
How is it possible that Tesla is more valuable than Volkswagen? How is this possible? It's only possible through financialization. And that in turn is only possible through the complete and utter derangement of the money supply caused by investment banks. And that in turn brings us back to a biblical principle. Man cannot serve two masters. A man cannot serve money and God. We have lost track of the fact that we should be serving God. We are serving money. And that will be our great downfall. And when that house falls, when, you know, I'm butchering the Bible here, but great was the falling of that house. When it will happen, it will be a dreadful, dreadful fall. The collapse is coming. The collapse of fiat currencies is coming. How do you protect yourself against that? Well, Bitcoin. That's one of the ways. Gold is another way. Investing in actual productive assets, physical, tangible assets, is another way. And that's for another time. That's for uh, another set of articles, another podcast. Um, and if there's interest in that, maybe I'll go into that from what little I know. And by the way, let's be very clear, as I'm sure you'll, you'll, you will conclude from listening to all of this. I can only see, well, I can only feel a tiny little piece of the elephant. I don't know all of its pieces. I don't understand everything that's going on. But what I'm seeing tells me we are in for a ca catastrophic reckoning. And it's not very far away. I don't know when it's going to happen. I just know that it's going to happen. So guard your hearts. Be ready for it. Understand why it's happening, because that's critical. If you understand why something's happening, you can prepare for what happens afterwards. Most people are going into this completely blind. They have no clue why any of this is happening. They think, like most academics, with their heads shoved up the elephant's butt, that the problem is due to agency problems or principal agency conflict. No, no, no. It's due to money. It's due to the derangement of the money supply. That's it. End of story. Go back to the basics. Study Austrian business cycle theory. Apply it to what you see around you. And start getting ready if you haven't already. That is going to have to be it for this edition of Didactic Mind. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, be sure to like, share, comment, and subscribe if you have not done so already. This was Didactic Mind episode 64, The Hand of Mammon, and this is Didact, signing off.